Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Some of the young men in this church spent some time memorizing this chapter in recent years and delighting in it. I want the last four verses for our consideration this afternoon. 2 Corinthians 5.18 And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Amen Amen and Amen. Last Sunday, we had the Lord's Supper, and Jesus Christ's death for us includes reconciling us to God. Last Sunday, we studied the six things that would come upon Israel in Daniel 9.24, and one of them was, reconciliation for iniquity. And that was Jesus Christ's death in that context. Today, we read in Romans 11 and verse 15, these words, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Given our understanding of this chapter and what we've learned so far, The verse is saying, if elect Israelites have been cast away from gospel and kingdom privileges in order for the world of the Gentiles to be reconciled to God, what shall the receiving of those elect Israelites be but life from the dead? The point being, we have a benefit that we have received by virtue of blindness put on the Jews 2,000 years ago. And that benefit was that Gentiles were reconciled to God. For it says in that 15th verse that that blindness that was put on them was the reconciling of the world. Those words are to be compared to verse 11 where it is salvation is come unto the Gentiles. And in verse 12 where it's the riches of the world and the riches of the Gentiles, it's reconciliation of Gentiles. God chose to describe the salvation that He has secured for us through Jesus Christ under a variety of terms. And if we're to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints against those who no longer care about sound doctrine, we want to know those terms. And I deal with one today, and you have just seen it in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 11.15, reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God, and I want us to consider it in its two aspects that are important to us today and the two aspects of it that the Bible emphasizes. What is reconciliation? It's the relational work because it involves a relationship. It's the relational work of bringing two antagonistic and warring parties to a peaceful and final settlement of differences so that they are agreeable and affectionately united with each other again. I like the term. Reconciliation. The relational work of bringing two antagonistic and warring parties to a peaceful and final settlement of differences so that they are now agreeable and affectionately united with each other again. The Bible uses the word this way. In 1 Samuel 29 and verse 4, the Philistine generals said, Send David home. This is when David was living among the Philistines. We don't want David going to battle with us today because he could reconcile himself to Saul by killing us in the back of our army. 
So there was the word reconcile being used. They knew that David and Saul were enemies and that David could reconcile himself to Saul by helping win the battle while standing in the middle of the Philistine army. And they were afraid of that. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 5, if you have offended your brother and you think of that when it's time to worship God, that you should put your gift down and go be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift because God does not want us offering gifts when we are not reconciled or at peace with those that we should be at peace with. So there's an offense that has separated two parties. The one party is conscious of it and is convicted about it, and so they're, they go and they're reconciled. They repent of what they did wrong, and they make sure everything is affectionate and agreeable again between the two of them. We're told in 1 Corinthians 7 that if a Christian wife divorces her husband... She is to remain single or be reconciled to him again. It is a sin for her to divorce her husband in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. But there's a second sin that she can avoid by staying single or, better, being reconciled again to her husband. Now that's how we use the term often when it comes to marriage. Those two have been fighting. Those two got a divorce or those two are about to get a divorce but they've been reconciled. And we realize, okay, they no longer hate each other. They're no longer angry with each other. They're at peace with each other. And they love each other again. That's a big word. It's a big event. And it's describing some rather large events here in the Bible. For those of you that are financial analysts or accountants, you do reconciliations in which you make sure that accounts or statements are equal and agreeable that there's no differences between them, that this statement over here and this subledger over here equal. And that's your job to reconcile accounts and reconcile statements so that they are consistently honest among themselves, but all the differences are taken away. You make some correcting entries in order to get them into balance, and it's called reconciliation. It's a very serious activity because you're dealing with two warring parties. Follow along with me as we feast on the fat things of the Word of God. Look at Proverbs chapter 26 with me as it gives us a little warning about being involved in the work of reconciliation. It's a serious activity because you've got two people, two parties, that are really angry at each other. There's war between them, and you're thinking about making peace? There's a problem. If you try to get involved, how many of the two are going to be angry at you? Both. It's dangerous work. We're taught to be peacemakers, and that's not my thought for today at all. I want us to think about what we just read in 2 Corinthians 5 and in Romans chapter 11. That reconciliation has been made for us, but let's delight ourselves in it this morning. Let's make sure we understand it. And appreciate it and are thankful for it. Look at Proverbs twenty six seventeen. He that passeth by and meddleth with strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh a dog by the ears. If a dog is barking at you and you grab it by its ears, what is it going to do to you? It's going to bite you. And if you pass by two people in a fight and get involved where you have not been invited, they're both going to bite you. It's dangerous business. There's a high probability that no matter what you do, you could be hated and hit or bit by both parties. Have you ever viewed a real fight where both parties totally hated each other and wanted to kill each other? It's horrible. Have you ever seen anyone try to break up such a fight? They're entering into very dangerous ground. The call that policemen and others fear the most is domestic violence. Where there are angry people at home that long-seated bitterness has reached the place of starting a fire between two parties and to get involved where emotions are that high and they're hateful with one another is a dangerous call to a police officer. Because there's no reason. And you've got two parties. You take the side of either one, the other one's going to be all over you. 
I want you to think about reconciliation. I'm trying to help you think about it. There's a need for us to be reconciled to God because we are at enmity against Him. Do you know that in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that the God of the Bible, the God that owns this universe and rules this universe, will not at all acquit the wicked. Do you know that it says that? I want to paint a picture for you right now of the two adversaries, the two antagonists, the two parties that are at enmity with each other, that hate each other, and are at war with each other. And it's God and men. God will not at all acquit the wicked. To acquit someone is to say they're not guilty and just cancel a trial or an accusation against them. God will not at all do that. Nahum 1, three, Exodus 34 and verse 7 says that God will not clear the guilty. And we are all guilty. And God will not clear us. I want you to be thinking about the adversary that we have in this universe. He is the Creator God with infinite power. But He is also infinitely holy and infinitely just. He will not acquit the wicked. He will not clear the guilty. He will not forgive offenders. You say, well, that's contrary to everything the Bible teaches. Look at Joshua 24 then so that I can enlighten you. And see Joshua's final words to the nation of Israel as the book of Joshua ends. I hope you remember Nahum 1.3, I've used them before, and Exodus 34.7, that he will not acquit the wicked and he will not clear the guilty. That means this adversary of ours is unapproachable. This adversary of ours is unreasonable. He is totally committed by his nature to destroy his enemies. Joshua 24. This is what Joshua told the people of Israel. Now see, usually when you go to Joshua 24, it's because of verse 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But I want to give you verse 19. Because the people had said after Joshua said that, they said, we will serve the Lord too. And Joshua said to them in verse 19, ye cannot serve the Lord. For he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. That's the God of the Bible. Toward his own people. He will not forgive. Of course, there's a sense to put on those words, but I'm not worried about that sense right now. If they did not worship him perfectly, he would not forgive them. The Bible says that the foolish shall not stand in his sight. He hates all workers of iniquity. Does the Bible say that about our God? Toward the men of this planet? Toward the human race? They'll not stand in his sight. Psalm 11 and verse 4 backs that one up by presenting the same truth in other words. Psalm 11 and verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. I paint for you a picture of an adversary that is the almighty and infinite God who is angry against this world and the inhabitants of this world. The Bible says in Psalm 7, which is nearby, and verse 11, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. So we have an adversary that is angry every day. And the portion that he wants to pour out upon the wicked is fire and brimstone. He hates them. They shall not stand in his sight. He cannot acquit. He will not clear. He cannot and will not forgive transgressions. Even with his friends, he would not let Moses see the land of Canaan for what we would consider a very slight fault on Moses' part considering 40 years of patiently and lovingly dealing with that nation. Even the Apostle Paul, he would not take away the thorn in the Apostle's flesh. This is the God that is angry on one side. 
On the other side are us. What does the Bible have to say about us? We're human rebels that chose His arch enemy to be our father, to be our leader, to be our teacher, and to be our guide through life. And I'm referring to the devil himself. And we made that choice in Eden, and we've made it ever since. We chose lies to rebel against our Creator and the paradise that He gave us in Eden. And men willfully choose this arrangement with great zeal every day of their lives. The Bible says in Psalm 10, which is also nearby, in verse 4, the wicked, describing every single one of us, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. So we've got this angry God, and we've got wicked rebel sinners that have chosen his arch enemy against him. They never have a thought of reconciling to God. They are, they hate God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no understanding. There is none that seeketh after God. They don't want to be reconciled. We are happy being the children of the devil and following the course of this world that was set up by the devil. No matter what is offered or threatened, man will not learn righteousness. Isaiah 26 and verse 10 says, Let favor be showed to the wicked. Yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. A wicked man by nature, no matter what you do for him, no matter what you give him, no matter what kindness you show him, he will not learn righteousness and he will not behold the majesty of the Lord because he hates the Lord. This is what the Bible teaches. And we give the Lord lots of reasons to hate us. Because we are His little creatures, and He is the Creator, and we despise Him, and we replace Him with the imaginations of men. Men, have, The Gentiles have replaced Him with, with idols of stone and idols of wood. They've replaced Him with creatures and the imaginations of their mind, whether it be Zeus or Hermes. We're enemies. If a man were to come back from the dead, he wouldn't be able to convince a man to make peace with God. There has never been any reconciliation like this in the universe or any imagined drama that you have ever read or watched on television that can even come close to this for effect. I want you to think about the fact that this God, angry with sinners, and these men, spitefully and rebelliously hateful of their Creator, are the two warring parties. This is what the Bible describes. But there was a man, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon him the task of putting those two warring parties together and removing all enmity and all hatred and all anger. And here's what happened when he tried to make that reconciliation between God and men. When Jesus Christ came to earth to reconcile men and to present God to them, what did they do to Him? They despised Him and violently killed Him. Remember what I said about taking a dog by the ears? Here's these two parties, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the middle of them to make peace with God for men and to make peace with men toward God. And what did we do? despised him and violently killed him. Unjust trial. Raised up false charges against him. Tortured him. Mocked him. Ridiculed him. And killed him. Like a common criminal. He came first to his own nation. John 1.11 He came unto his own. He came unto his own. And his own received him not. John 1.11 He came to his own relatives. Do you know that his brothers rejected him until after his resurrection? Right. His own family. They rejected him in spite of his humility, his perfect character and temperament, and countless miracles. Do you understand the enmity between men and God? Man's anger and envy was so great against God, they killed John. They killed the apostles and they killed God's son that came to reconcile the two of them. 
Look what Jesus got Himself involved in for trying to reconcile us to God and reconcile God toward us. We tore Him apart. Because we didn't want to be reconciled. We loved things just the way they were. Under the devil. Slaves to sin and rebellion. Living in dysfunction and wickedness all the days of our lives. Well, what, what happened when Jesus Christ turned to reconcile God, who is angry with sinners every day, and who will not let the foolish stand in His sight, who will not acquit, who will not clear, who will not forgive. What happened when Jesus Christ turned toward that side and that antagonistic party? What happened? My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? That relationship that he had with his father disappeared into the, into the morning. You know why? Because there was some of you attached to him. And he was trying to make reconciliation for you. Your stench was so bad that God had to turn himself away from his own son. Do you know what the Bible says that that God did to the Lord Jesus Christ in the hours leading up to His crucifixion and on the cross? Think about a few words. You can find them all in Isaiah 53. If you would like to read two passages of Scripture where the Lord Jesus Christ describes turning toward God in this work of reconciliation, it is Psalm 22, the first 21 verses, and it is Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, it says this is what happened when Jesus Christ tried to reconcile God toward you. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastised, given stripes, oppressed, put to grief, and finally cut off. All of it out of Isaiah 53 and some of those words used multiple times. It pleased God to hurt the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're angry enough with an enemy and someone gets in between you and they're trying to stick up for this enemy, now you have two parties you want to hurt. The original enemy and the one sticking up for this party. And it pleased the Lord to bruise, it pleased, pleased God to bruise the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ stepped in between the two warring parties. We killed him. God killed him. But I want to tell you, he succeeded. And there's two aspects to it that we want to remember. Two phases of salvation. The legal phase... God accepted the reconciling work of Jesus Christ and said, I love those people. I love my elect. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. How long has God loved His elect? Since the cross? Oh no since he knew by covenant what his son would do on the cross. And when did that take place? In eternity past. When he chose us in Christ before the world began, as I just quoted to you. We have first of all been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. Does the Bible tell us that we are made accepted in the beloved? Who's accepting us? The God that cannot accept sinners. The God that cannot acquit the wicked. The God that cannot clear the guilty. The God that cannot forgive sinners. The God that says the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. And I'm foolish! How will I ever stand in God's sight? That God has made me accepted in the Beloved. Who is the Beloved? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He stepped in where no man would dare. I wonder how many of you have ever seen a real fight and if you would get involved in a real fight where both would want to kill you. Both did kill him. 
But there's wisdom that excels all the wisdom of the universe in arranging all of that to make peace with his people. It's unbelievable. The story of reconciliation as the Bible conveys it to us. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Oh, Lord, the Lord Jesus. We had the Lord's Supper last Sunday. We should have it again today. We should have it again next Sunday. We should remember His death. We should love His death. We should think about what He did. I want to paint a picture for you from the pages of Scripture for you to think about these two parties and realize that the Lord Jesus Christ went into the middle of them. God forsook Him. We hated Him. The apostles left Him. But He didn't back down from His work, did He? Not at all. He looked forward to it his whole life. He set his face to go to Jerusalem to know what he was going to have to do. He, he prayed so earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweat, as it were, drops of blood wrestling with what he was doing. He was going to undergo separation from God he had never experienced in his life. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. If Jesus Christ dying reconciled us to God, and now Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, continually reminding Him that the complete reconciliation price was paid for when he, at the cross, we, are, we cannot be lost. If his death actually did the legal reconciling, what about his life of intercession? We are saved, saved. We are safe, safe. We are reconciled, reconciled. Once by his death and his perpetual life is to preserve and keep that for us. Look at chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Who can condemn these once enemies of God that are now reconciled to him? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. There is no condemnation to be placed on these enemies now. The elect of God, made up of Jews and Gentiles, are now loved by God because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ going in where no man could go in, going in where no man could have any effect on on God toward sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ went in there. Do you want to talk about love? The Apostle Paul says it would take the strength of the might of the Holy Spirit for you to fully comprehend the height and the length and the depth and the width of the love of God, of the love of Christ for you in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. For you to fully appreciate what Jesus Christ did for you takes the might of the Holy Spirit of God to get all the dimensions of this love of Jesus Christ stepping into between two warring parties that were that hated each other with the highest degree of hatred and anger and vengeance. Look at Colossians chapter 1. This is what the Bible's about. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Let's get verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Oh, yes. There's no one fuller than the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ is full of glory. Any angle that you look at Him, in Him should all fullness dwell, because He's the one with the preeminence from verse 18. Verse 20, And having made peace through the blood of His cross. Peace with God. Do you have any idea what those angels blasted across the countryside of Judea at night? Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Blasting it with the volume of heaven. Praise His glorious name. Let us go in at once and see what is in Bethlehem. And having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, By Him I say, whether they be things in earth 
or things in heaven. Do you know that there were 4,000 years of God's elect already in heaven? But the price hadn't yet been paid for their reconciliation. Well, how'd they get to go to heaven? Because God can declare those things which be not as though they were. But even then, He still has to do what He hasn't done. And Jesus Christ did it. Things in heaven, things in earth, reconciled unto God by Himself, by the blood of His cross. Verse 21, And you, you, you Gentiles, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. That is the Gospel. What wonderful news from the word reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14. For He is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity. See, enmity disappeared. These commandments that we had never kept, that we had always broken, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, and that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and He came and preached peace. And we don't want to get too far into that yet. But look at the Lord Jesus Christ by dying on the cross, slew the enemy, the enmity. He went right into the teeth of God's justice and holy claims against each of us and made peace by letting the, by absorbing the wrath of God and the anger of God against sin because of your sins. The Lord Jesus Christ took it and the Bible says we've been reconciled. The war's over because we've been reconciled. There's a, he, look at Hebrews chapter 2. Please forgive me for any frustration. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That's Hebrews 2.14, now 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that because He had our nature and He took our sins and the Lord punished Him in our place as a substitute for us and the Lord was satisfied. We were reconciled to God. Now there's a reconciliation that comes in the gospel. The reconciliation is complete as far as God's concerned. In certain respects, and they're very important respects, they were complete before the world began. Because He already knew what He had purposed to do, and He already knew what the Lord Jesus Christ was going to do, and He already knew that He had placed us in the Lord Jesus Christ before the world began. That is what we call eternal justification. That is what we would call eternal reconciliation. But the price had not yet been paid, and it was paid for 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. But listen, brethren, when we turn to 2 Timothy 1, is there a lesson there for us? 2 Timothy chapter 1. I heard a hmm-hmm. Matthew, is that you? Okay. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling and reconciled us to God. I add to the text to remind you of what we're talking about right now, and that's our reconciliation. God has saved us in Christ, called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's brought to view. You can tell what happened. If it wouldn't have been for the gospel and if it wouldn't have been for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, no one would know about the eternal transactions in the Godhead and the everlasting covenant by which all the elect were written by name in the book of life and Jesus Christ was sent to reconcile two adversarial parties to each other. You wouldn't know about it. But now it's made manifest by the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light 
through the gospel. He abolished death by the sacrifice of himself and he brought it to light by the gospel because the gospel tells us the things that God has done. Do you know what happens when you don't have the gospel preached to you? Then you go about in the fear of death being in bondage to false teachers and false religion. Are there anyone like that in the world today? Is it the vast majority of the world today in fear of death, in bondage to others? Where we read that was Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Are you with me? The war is over. God has surrendered to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and is no longer angry and wanting to destroy and cast into eternal hell His elect. The war's over. He shall see of the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. These are precious words from Isaiah 53. Do we appreciate them like we should? Can we imagine the picture that I've tried to paint? Can we see the Lord Jesus Christ going into the middle of it and reconciling God toward us? God is at peace. There is total peace. He is no longer shooting at all. No planes are taking off from airstrips. The war is over. But if you don't know the war is over, you buy candles for Catholic, from Catholic priests. You make trips to Mecca. You rub Buddha's belly. You try to be one of the 144,000 of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You get baptized in underground baptistry for your dead relatives if you're a Mormon. Because you don't know the war is over. You have to do something to finish the war. You're afraid of dying. You know that you're guilty before God. Your conscience tells you His eternal power and Godhead could be unleashed at any moment. Maybe in a storm. The the lightning bolt is going to come through my window and get me. The war's over! You sound like Japanese soldiers after World War II. And for those of you that read that little link that I sent you in the preparatory email, I'm not loco. And I don't waste your time. I wanted you to read that chronology that after World War II ended, there were Japanese soldiers with no means of communication stuck in jungles in the Philippines and on islands scattered throughout those seas in the South and the South, Southeastern Pacific, South Pacific Sea that didn't know the war was over. And you look at that chronology and you can see them still fighting a year later. Do you know how long a year is? 365 days trying to survive in a jungle because you're going to be loyal to the imperial military forces of Japan. You're going to fight to the death for your emperor. Then it's two years. You're eating berries. You're living off of coconuts. You're keeping your weapon clean. And all of a sudden, planes are going overhead, and they've been going overhead, dropping leaflets. And you look at the leaflet. You look at the leaflet. I can't believe this. This is propaganda. They're trying to get me to come out of the woods along with my comrades, and there must be thousands of them scattered through this jungle. And when we come out, they're going to kill us. And so they kept on fighting. There were four of them in the Philippines that over several decades killed so many Filipinos that didn't have to die. But those Japanese soldiers thought the war was still going on. I sent you a chronology for you to realize that if you haven't heard that the war is over, you keep fighting. Especially when you're highly motivated. What is the motivation of sinners? They know they're guilty before a God with eternal power and Godhead. And they are brought into bondage by systems of religion that tell them, you will not surrender. Were the Japanese ever told that? You will not surrender. You will keep fighting. Five years. Can you imagine wasting five years of your life fighting an imaginary war that was already over where the emperor on the deck of the USS Missouri signed unconditional surrender 
to the United States. Ten years. As a teenage boy in the 60s, I remember seeing them once in a while in the newspaper. And I I couldn't fully appreciate it then as I do now. Some of the last ones were 30 years buried away in the jungles on islands fighting a war that had been totally settled 30 years earlier. Depriving themselves of every comfort. One of them, when he got back to Japan, got to meet his 30-year-old son that he had conceived before he went to battle. And of course, his wife had married another man 20 years earlier. If you think about that and think about the effect of a person not hearing the truth of the gospel that's one of God's elect, it is just an equal and worse nightmare. You are guilty of sin. You know there's an eternal God and power. And you are guilty before him. And you do not know that the war is over. And that he is at peace with you totally, fully, finally. This is the doctrine of reconciliation. The last one, Lieutenant Hiro Onada, 1974. The last one that has been fully and officially verified. 29 years after 1945, denied every effort of policemen, Filipino military personnel, leaflets. Every effort was propaganda, and they're lying to take me off my duty. And when you try to present the gospel to a Catholic, they're going to think you're lying to take you off their duty to Mother Church because there's no salvation out of Mother Church. Do you understand that? They need to hear the truth of the gospel. Do you know what it took? to bring Lieutenant Hiro Onada, that's not spelled H-E-R-O, it's H-I-R-O-O, out of the the jungle of the Philippines, his commanding officer. They had to bring his commanding officer all the way from Japan to the Philippines and take him there and send him into the jungle to find that man after 30 years of not seeing each other and tell him, Soldier, Put down your weapons. The war's over. It's been over. And I say to you, the war's over. And it's been over. And so, will you you close with me with going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? What, What if people don't hear that the war's over? What if Cornelius didn't meet Peter? What if the eunuch didn't meet Philip? What if we didn't help Paul, I'm pretending we're the church at Rome, preach to some of those Jews that he wanted to see some of them saved? Do you have a desire for souls? First your own, then your family, then our church, then others that the Lord gives us an opportunity to present the gospel to. It's, it's all up in the head. Lieutenant Hiro Onada, he was a faithful soldier. He was doing his duty the best he'd been told. He didn't know that Emperor Hirohito had taken a pen and submitted his nation to the United States 30 years earlier and countless others between 45 and 74. What if a person hasn't heard that Jesus Christ did all the reconciling with us to God. Every denomination and every religion has their own system of works set up that keeps that person in bondage. Except the truth. Except the truth. Watch. Romans 11 and verse 15 said, If the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. Well, now... Were we reconciled to God and was peace made with God because Jews didn't believe the gospel? No. The news of that reconciliation with God got to the Gentiles because the Jews didn't believe the gospel. And that wasn't going to be for too long on their part either 
It was just to get it redirected to us. So when we come along and read this passage, and by the grace of God, I can remember being a late teenager, reading these words for the first time and, and vaguely understanding that there's two, there's two reconciliations here in these verses. Right. There's two. Why doesn't anybody see that there's two? Why do they want to make them one and the same where my peace with God is dependent upon my faith and someone else's faithfulness and being a soul winner to me? I know that my faith is so weak and it was so wavering. I don't want my eternal life and my reconciliation with God resting on my faith. I want it resting on the finished work of Emperor Hirohito who signed a unconditional surrender to the United States. But what I really mean is, I want it settled in the Lord Jesus Christ who said, it is finished. Now read these verses with me and see if they don't explode in value to you. If God is merciful. And all things are of God. Everything I've talked about, every aspect of it, all is of God. All things are of God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, that is a past event, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So there's ministers involved that do something about reconciliation. But God had already done the reconciling. So we come to verse 19, to wit. That means, I'll explain it for you to think about more carefully. To wit, that God was in Christ. Everything was by design that He raised up the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, for this work, reconciling the world unto Himself. It is the work of Christ that reconciled the world, us Gentiles outside the commonwealth of Israel, unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He didn't charge them with their sins. He charged Christ instead. The war is over because Jesus paid for those trespasses and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We're like a pilot of a B-29 super fortress carrying leaflets over islands of the Philippines and dropping leaflets saying, the war's over. Come out. You can have free passage back home to join your family. But we hear the gospel from who have the word of reconciliation. You've been reconciled by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. The Lord Jesus Christ who went in between these two warring parties, He knows that God has seen the travail of His soul and is satisfied, but have His elect understood and appreciated what He has done for them. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That's not God being reconciled to sinners. That's you being reconciled to God I won't be afraid anymore. I won't try to save myself anymore. I trust the Lord Jesus Christ and Him only. Because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to hear. And He's praying. There's two reconciliations. The legal reconciliation done by Christ on the cross that God was satisfied with. He saw it from eternity past. He'll see it in eternity future. We are holy. We are without blame. We are spotless in love before Him because He's made complete and perfect and final peace. And yet, we have our minds that until we hear the truth of the Gospel, we don't know that wonderful news. And so Paul said, we're ambassadors. We're representing this King who stepped in between God and you. He reconciled God to you, you be reconciled to Him. Whenever you're afraid, you're doubting that reconciliation. You're doubting that finished work. I bring you this passage and I bring you the whole Word of God, which is the great leaflet sent down from heaven to tell us that peace has been made. The war is over. And brethren, if it wasn't for Romans 11, you and I would not be doing this. We'd be out there chasing around and having some form of false religion today because the gospel would not have been directed to us. It would have been restrained within the nation of Israel like it was for 1,500 years. But God in His infinite wisdom blinded some of the elect parties who deserved to hear that message of His own nation to send it to us to provoke them to jealousy. And what a receiving of life from the dead 
to have their fullness brought back in when they believe the same message. Do you understand that 20th verse? Do you understand the 19th and the 18th? God was in Christ 2,000 years ago settling reconciliation from a legal standpoint of God's justice and holiness. Every one of his elect that Jesus Christ died for, God is at peace with them and not only at peace, he loves them dearly and has always loved them because of that finished work of reconciliation. You think that you can see a husband and a wife take marriage counseling and they get reconciled and you'll believe that. You'll believe that two statements that look impossibly out of balance can be reconciled. You'll believe all these different kinds of reconciliation. You'll believe that this person that's been angry at you for 20 years because of something you did, when you finally go and repent to him and he says, I forgive you, you believe that reconciliation. Will you believe a better one? Established on better promises. Established on a better sacrifice. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel went to the Gentiles, and when they heard it, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And I hope that you are glad this day. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the legal transaction. That's all of God. He did all of that. He made us righteous with Jesus Christ's righteousness. He took our sins and punished them in the Lord Jesus Christ instead of in us. But now Jesus Christ prays that you will receive the news of what he did. Be ye reconciled to God. How do you do that? You're at peace with God. I know that God isn't angry with me anymore because He poured out His anger on the Lord Jesus Christ and He has said it is finished. God has said it. Jesus has said it. It's over. And ministers only tell us about the wonderful news of that finished transaction. And that is what Romans 11 verse 15 is about. By their casting away, the world was reconciled. Gospel reconciliation. The word of reconciliation. You Gentiles, be ye reconciled to God. Jesus Christ has already taken care of the God half. Cornelius heard it. The eunuch heard it. He said, Philip, what's this chapter talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself or another man? And Philip preached to him. Jesus. Do you care about souls? Will you pray with me and for me that the Lord will give us opportunities to to save others like Paul wanted to save them? To give them the word of reconciliation. I'm not much of an ambassador for this king, but let's do all that we can to share such wonderful news. The Lord has been so good to us. Let our mercy go out from us to others. And may Jesus Christ be praised. If you have any doubts about your assurance of salvation, you need to study and remember this great subject. And don't be like Lieutenant Hiro Onada in the Philippine jungle. The war's over, and the leaflet came from heaven, and it's 66 books long, and 31,101 verses to make sure that you believe it. It's not propaganda. It's the true message of the living God. And since you've benefited so much and since I've benefited so much, let's have a little bit of the burden for souls that Paul had. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.